0: Before we get into the last message in our Address the Mess message series, I just want to give you a preview of where we're headed over the next couple of weeks. So starting next week, we're going to start just a a brief three-week message series on encounters with Jesus. What happens when ordinary people run into an extraordinary God and how does their life change? So Pastors Todd and Jay and myself will be rotating through those three weeks, looking at different scenes from the Gospels. And then right after that, I'm really excited that we're going to be looking in depth for five weeks at the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. And helping us to walk through that is, I think, the best author of all time. That's subjective, I know, but at least my favorite author, Tim Keller, and he wrote a book called The Prodigal Prophet, And he's looking at Jonah and how do you see God's mercy all throughout his life. And so if you want to buy that book and read it along with us, we have one copy in the library right now so you can run and get it if you want. Um, But if not, uh, we're we're not going to take everything from that, but just little things in that book I think will help this book of Jonah come alive. But we have some work to do today. And one of the, the stories that captured me from a little child, and probably many of you as well, is the story of the Titanic. You see, the Titanic was set to be the best ship ever built. Those who saw the design and heard about it and those who were very, very wealthy couldn't wait to step aboard. Those who had multi, multi millions, and back then, that's a ton of money, were paying expensive fees uh, to get on this boat. And not only was it a luxurious ride, it was also very, very safe. In fact, they called the Titanic an indestructible ship, but we know that it was not indestructible. Sadly, it ran into an iceberg, and that iceberg made the boat begin to sink, and then the ship cracked in half, and it left only 705 people alive because of it, and it made me think. I know the story. Y'all are probably thinking of the movie as I'm talking about that. Yes, Jack did die, sadly, but what sunk the Titanic? The iceberg didn't sink it. What sunk it was, there's lots of different reasons, but the main reason was because they saw the, uh, the looming deadline and the boat wasn't ready, and instead of saying, hey, we need a few more days or weeks, they rushed the process. They used cheap steel and faulty rivets to put the ship together, and though they thought it was indestructible, it was not built to last So when it, of course, hit the iceberg, it sunk because it wasn't built for that. And as I was thinking about the Titanic, I started to wrestle with some things in my life, specifically my faith, and I was wrestling with the question that I want to pose to you this morning. It's the question, can my faith survive when it runs into the iceberg of doubt, And I'm not saying if it does. Let me tell you, it's when it does. For some of you in this room, if you have not run into the iceberg of doubt, you will. And I don't say that to scare you. I say because that's reality. Doubt is real. Those who have dealt with doubt significantly when it comes to your faith, you can see how disturbing it really can be. And it makes you question everything. So how can we crash into this iceberg of doubt and survive? Well, as we finish this message series, I want to pose to you, not only do I believe we can survive it, I believe that our faith can thrive as a result of it. And I want to show you how. To begin, though, I want to look at what does this word doubt really mean? And I love what Oz Guinness, an author and theologian, says about it. He He says, the Latin word for doubt, dubiter, comes from the Aryan root meaning two. So to believe or have faith is to be in one mind with regard to accepting something is true. To disbelieve is to be in one mind about rejecting it. Now here's where doubt comes in. To doubt is to waver between the two and so to be in two minds. So when you doubt, a lot of people think, I'm doubting, it's the, it's the antithesis to faith. It's actually not. It's splitting the difference. Because you can be in this mind, and you can believe, and the Bible makes sense, and, and God is speaking to you, and when you pray, you feel like God is right there, and when you're at church, the music, the message, everything just clicks, and you believe. But then quickly, it's so easy for us to come into this mind and something happens and you don't understand the bible anymore and your prayers feel like they hit the ceiling and god doesn't seem real to you anymore and when you come to church it's like what is really happening it's not relevant to your life and it's so easy to jump in that mind but what is so scary and what's so disheartening is when you go back and forth you believe and then something happens and you disbelieve and then something happens and then you believe and you go back and forth back and forth in doubt can be so exhausting, so discouraging when you really have to deal with it. But one of the things that really helps in doubt, one of the things that really made me really understand it is what Scripture has to say about it. You know what's interesting? A lot of people, when they read the Bible, especially if they're not familiar with it, they approach it like it's a fairy tale. Like they're about to read stories of people of the perfect life because they have this perfect faith in God and everything works out in the end. And if you believe that, I can promise you, you have not read the Bible. That's what I love about the Bible. It's not trying to say what ought to be. It says what really is happening. Real life. And when Philip Yancey, he was an author, is speaking to college students about doubt, here's what he says. He says, when I speak to college students, I challenge them to find a single argument against God in the older agnostics or the newer ones that is not already included in the books of Psalms, Job, Habakkuk, and Lamentations, all in the Bible. And then he says, God seems rather doubt-tolerant, actually. I love this. There are many people out there writing about why God doesn't exist and why God isn't good, and they bring all these arguments up, and I'm thinking, dude, you're stealing from the Bible because when you look at Job, Habakkuk, Psalms, Lamentations, you carry that into the New Testament in the Gospels and beyond. You see real people who are genuine people, who have genuine faith, who doubt and they wonder, is what they believe real? So when we open scripture we're not opening a fairy tale we're opening to real life and it, your life and mine as well it paints a real picture. And what we're going to look at today is a story of two people two case studies on doubt and what happens when they doubt. And what I love about these two case studies is that it hits different avenues of doubt. And they're found in the gospels The first, we're going to call this person that doubts, the skeptic, and he deals with intellectual questions, intellectual doubt, the big questions of life he's wrestling with, the wise. But the hurting dad in the Gospel of Mark is a guy who isn't dealing with the big questions of faith, he's dealing with with the reality of life and the pains of life. And therefore, he is wrestling with this emotional doubt that's plaguing him from truly believing in God. And both of these stories, I promise you, will speak to you either in one way or another, or they'll just hit you head on. These are really incredible. So first is skeptic. We find this guy in John chapter one. Now what's interesting in John chapter one is Jesus has just come on the scene and Jesus is making a ruckus. He is starting to live his life and all of a sudden people get excited that this could be the Messiah. The one that the Jews have been waiting for to be the completion of their faith. Now the problem is a lot of people along the way claim to be the Messiah and they were not. And so when people said here comes the Messiah, of course people are like, really, is it him? So there are these few skeptics, they're hanging around. Jesus walks by and they're like, are you the guy? And Jesus, he turns around and he doesn't perform a miracle, though he could have. He just said, why don't you come and see? Just follow me. And you decide for yourself. This guy named Philip he sees that Jesus really is who he says he is, what's been predicted in the Old Testament, and he runs to find his friend Nathaniel. He can't wait to tell him about how they have found the one they've longed for. Here's what happens. Philip, in John chapter one, went to look for Nathaniel and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph, and he's from Nazareth, Nathanael responds, Nazareth, are you joking with me, can anything good come from Nazareth, now if you're going to make up a story to try to prove Jesus to be true, you would not include something like this, because this is questioning, is Jesus really who he says he is. Can it be really said that he is the one that is supposed to come? I love that about the Bible because they include real life. And Nathaniel, he doesn't say, yes, there he is. Let's go and follow him. We've been waiting for him, and let's stake our lives on this guy. His first response is skepticism and sarcasm. He's like, okay, Philip, what have you been drinking this morning? (laughs) There's something wrong here. Because you and I both know that nothing good can come from Nazareth. Like, you have to be joking. Is this April Fool's Day? Like, what is going on? And the reason he says nothing good can come from Nazareth is because Nazareth was a town where it was small and obscure. Nothing prominent came from that. Imagine where you grew up. Maybe it was here, maybe it's somewhere else and there was that town and you know in that town you didn't want to go there. You didn't want to be from there. There was the town across the tracks so to speak and when you heard it you would literally look down on people from that town and that's exactly how the Jews looked at Nazareth. They looked down upon the people that came from there. So if you're going to try to make a logical case about someone prominent coming from there people would laugh at you. But to try to prove That the Messiah came from there? Nathaniel would have been like, you're crazy. (laughs) Try something else if you're going to convince me. It was illogical. And anyone that would have heard that back then would have said the same thing. They would have laughed. And that's what happens today. People, you tell them that you believe in Jesus, and you start to explain that you actually take the Bible true and those kinds of things, and they, they think you're joking. They look down upon you. In fact, Tim Keller, he, he says this, many people today view Christianity much like Nathaniel viewed Nazareth. I mean, think about it. Let's say that you're with your friends or some coworkers or family that they don't believe in Jesus and you do, and you're gonna make a decision that you know it's going to rock people's view of you, and when you make that decision, people ask, well, how did you come to that conclusion? And they're ready for a logical reason, and you said, well, I prayed about it. And they're like, no, seriously, what is wrong with you? What, how did you really come to this conclusion? They're like, no, 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 God told me. Oh, God told you. Really? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You start using God told me, and the Bible says, and my prayer life says, people start to laugh. They look down on you. Like, let's think logically here, because that doesn't make sense. Just like it doesn't make sense that Jesus came from Nazareth. Or some of you here, you're Nathaniel. You're, you're standing back. You're, you're looking in on an argument about God that, that there's only one true religion or there's only one way to heaven and you're like, come on. All those millions of people that are sincerely believing all over the world, you're trying to tell me that there's one way to Jesus? You sneer at it. You laugh at it. You're sarcastic about it. You can't believe that that is actually a logical argument for belief. Or some of you, or Nathaniel, and you you try to believe, and you do believe, like Jesus is the way, and you believe the Bible is true, and prayer is real, and God speaks to you, and then something happens. Somebody questions your belief, and you don't know how to answer a question. Or someone brings you a book, and you don't know how to argue it back. Or something is posed to you, and you're just like, my worldview says this, but this is saying this, what do I do? And you Go back and forth. I believe, but I don't believe. I believe, and I don't believe. And you find yourself in two different minds, and that is a scary place to be. How do you solve that tension? What do you do about that kind of logical doubt? I'll tell you in a moment. To our other story. Mark chapter nine. There's this dad who is hopeless, you ever been in a hopeless situation? This dad would have understood. He had a son in whom he loved, just like you and I love our kids and grandkids and those kids in our lives that we can't get enough of. He's just heartbroken and hopeless because his son has been demon-possessed from the beginning of his life, and he's having these violent seizures as a result. And some of you, immediately when I said demon-possessed, you got a little Nathaniel on me. You're like, demon-possession? Really? I would challenge you to go to a different country and see that it's happening. And in our country, it's happening too, but probably not in the way that you think. I'm not going to go there today. But regardless, it doesn't matter what is happening. This dad is hopeless. There are things in his life that are preventing him from truly believing in God. And you and I know when that thing, that iceberg is there and our lives hit that thing or we see other people's lives hit that thing, it feels like our faith is going to sink. And we can't do anything about it. We are helpless. We are hopeless. And this emotional doubt begins to come through. Here's what happens to this dad. in Mark chapter 9. Jesus said, how long has this been happening? And the dad replied, well, it's been happening since he was a little boy. The Spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Then he looks at Jesus. He says, Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Jesus says, What do you mean if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. And the Father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. D.L. Moody said a long time ago, there's three kinds of faith. And I bet you all three are represented in this room today. The first is this. He calls it resting faith. Like a person safely in a boat and able to help others get in. It's those in this room who would say they have one mind and it's of faith and they're not doubting, they're not unbelieving, they really trust in this Jesus and they believe in him and they have safe footing while the boat may be a little rocky, and they feel like they can pull others in who may not be doing so well in their faith. And there's some of you that have that resting faith, resting in Jesus. When people come and talk to you, you're the person they want to talk to because they trust you to help them get in the boat. But then there's this kind of faith, clinging faith, like a person hanging on to the side of the boat. They're there, they believe, but they're barely Holding on. And the boat continues to go and go and go, and they are getting tired, and they don't know how long they could hold on. And you may be here as well, and you may have been believing in Jesus, but something happened that threw you overboard, and you haven't given up all the way, but you're barely holding on. And then there's just people who are just struggling. Like a person in deep water, desperately swimming, there's no mention of the boat. The boat is maybe in view but they can't see it. They're swimming and swimming and swimming and they're getting tired and they can't keep up anymore and they wanna give up entirely and that is what this dad is doing. He has struggling faith and you can hear it in him. Here's this dad who he's face to face with Jesus, literally right in front of him and Jesus is asking the question, how long has this been happening? And he recounts how long. And then this guy, he's trying to muster up the faith to really put his faith, his whole faith in Jesus. And so he says, you can help me. You can have mercy on me. And then he jumps right to the unbelief, if you can. You can just see the war in this dad of, I believe you can, but I don't believe you can. I really trusted you, but then your disciples, they couldn't help me, and I don't know what to do, but I am hopeless. And if you don't help, I don't know what's gonna happen. And then Jesus is like, listen, anything is possible for all who believe. You've, remember those like, little catchphrases, you know, those, just be happy, or all things are going to work out. And when you're going through something, you're looking at that person and saying, are you really serious right now? So the dad is like, okay, I know, all things happen for those who believe. I do believe. And then right after that, he can't close his mouth. It comes out of his heart, but I don't. Help me. Back and forth, back and forth. And when you're in a hopeless situation and God is your refuge, I can promise you, you're going to find yourself in the middle, going back and forth. There are some of you in this room right now that have this kind of struggling faith that find yourself barely holding on and you're getting tired. I I know that I've talked to you. You, for some reason in your life, whether you were a child or an adult, you find yourself in this boat and you believe and you have all the qu- answers to the questions, and no matter what happened to your boat, nothing could rock it. But then, over time, the thing that you were believing God for, is just not changing. Nothing's helping. In fact, it feels like it's getting worse. And then you jump to this side, and then you go back and forth, barely holding on. I am grateful to God that he has given me resting faith when it comes to intellectual doubt. The way God has made me, I have a mind that can, I think, help people along the way when they have tough questions. I've been fortunate to go to seminary. I have a lot of books. I haven't read them all, but they're at least on my bookshelf, so I look smart. And all of these things that for me, I just, it clicks for me. And so I would see, like, if someone's drowning, I can help hopefully bring them in or at least get them close. But when it comes to the emotional doubt, the hopelessness, the feelings of you're not enough or whatever that is, I struggle. I struggle. I mean, even today, singing those songs up there, Cornerstone, Build My Life on You, all of these things, normally I'm like, yes, Lord, let's go. But today, I just stared at the words. It's hard for me to believe today because of life situations. There have things happened in my life that immediately went from here to here within a half a second. The first time that happened was when I saw my son have his first seizure I thought to myself, when they almost couldn't bring him back after he turned blue, I thought to myself, God, I, I was going to seminary. I want to give that up. I don't want to work at a church anymore. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And then when they brought him back, I tried to put my hope back in God, and he just go back and forth. Or when I got the news that my stepmom, I'm going to talk about her over the next couple of weeks in one of our messages, that she got sick and and she died. And then my dad, my stepdad got killed on a motorcycle. You go from everything's great, you're in school or, or you're at work, and then I jump over here and I'm like, I can't believe in you. How could you do this to my family? But it's not just the big things in life. I think a lot of us think doubt happens when these big catastrophic things happen. And I think we have to remember it also happens every single day of our lives. I know for me, when my marriage is struggling, I just go back and forth. There's nothing worse in my mind when that happens. Or there's feelings of just inadequacy and not believing in who God made me to be as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend, you start to feel this way. And man, I just oscillate back and forth. It's maddening. Or when you fear or you worry. May I tell you, worry is the worst thing that happens. You, you don't know what's ahead. Instead of having faith that God will provide and that he's there for you, you can jump so far and say, but will he? Can he? Has he forgotten about me? Back and forth we go. And that's the scary thing about doubt. If you're not prepared for it, and if you're not ready for it, it could have the effect of sinking you and breaking you. So what do you do about it? What do you do if you're struggling with the big questions of life and God doesn't seem to answer those right now? Or what do you do when life seems to be hurting and you feel hopeless and you can't do anything about it? What do you do? These two stories, they're not about a guy who struggles with intellectual doubt and a guy who struggles with emotional doubt. Those are not the main issues of the story. The stories are about what they do with their doubt. Because doubt will come. The question is, what do you do with it? And my advice to you, and this sounds really Christian-y and it's true, but I don't know how else to do it. Tell you if you are doubting please doubt to Jesus and you may say but I'm doubting about Jesus and I would say I, I understand that but if you don't take those doubts to him and you take them to other places or other people you may not come back from some of those things all Jesus wants us to do is to doubt to him so for the skeptic Nathaniel. Here he is. Philip brings him the Messiah. He says he's from Nazareth. He's laughing at that. It's illogical. And Philip says something to Nathaniel in that moment that changes his life. Here's what he says He says, Nathaniel, come and see for yourself. When those skeptics on the scene earlier in John, didn't know of Jesus who he says he is, he says, come and see. And then right after that, when Philip is giving advice to his friend Nathaniel, he says the same thing. And here's why this is so important. If you have people who doubt in your life or you're trying to debate them, good luck convincing them. I can promise you 99 out of 100 times you're not going to do it. But if you just simply say to them, I can't argue I can't give you a systematic theology book. I can't give you this website. Those things help me. It may not help you. All I'm asking you to do is just go and see for yourself. I know you think this is illogical. I know you think it doesn't make sense. I know you think it's archaic. I know you think it's a fantasy. I get it. I get it. I get it. I've wrestled with it too. Just come and see for yourself. Imagine if Nathaniel just stayed back and never took Philip's advice. Imagine if Nathaniel just said, thanks, but no thanks. There is no way the Messiah can come from a place like that. Imagine what his life would have been. He never would have discovered it for himself. There are so many people that hear an argument for God, or against God, I should say, in the classroom by a professor who's, who's an atheist, or, or on a blog, or, or on a website, but they've never went to Jesus themselves. And they doubt because they let everybody else shape their worldview and not Jesus himself. When we stand back and we don't go to the source itself, we call that intellectual snobbery. What that means is all you do is know the answers. You don't need any help. You don't need what may be there. And when we do that, it, you'll never change. That's why pride, it says, comes before the fall. If you have all the answers, you don't need to go to Jesus, that's fine. You'll never be convinced, but maybe you're missing out on something as well. Because here's what Nathaniel does. He's probably resigned himself. He's like, whatever. Let's go check this guy out. So they approached them, and Jesus said about Nathanael, oh, here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. Now, Jesus has never met Nathanael. It's not like they had a conversation, and they went away, and then they're coming back and say, oh, there's my friend Nathanael. Here he is. He's a man of integrity. He's never seen the guy. Nathanael's, like, really creeped out, which I think you and I would be too. Like, whoa, how do you know me? Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. And then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Wow, what a switch. (laughs) From a guy who stands back and says, nothing good can come from Nazareth to claiming he is who he says he is. I am not asking you to not doubt the truth. You need to. You need to wrestle with it. The Bible is full of people that do it. But all I'm saying, and Nathaniel is a great example of this, is that you also need to doubt your doubts because you know what? Maybe we don't know. That's what Nathaniel is doing here. He's open to what you may not know. If you are open to what you may not know, it may be scary. People may judge you. But wouldn't you rather figure out the truth? C.S. Lewis, he was an ardent atheist for a long time. He was familiar with all the atheistic arguments for God. He himself had those arguments for God. He was brilliant, and a lot was at stake for him. Then all of a sudden, he starts to wrestle with this God thing. He started to ask, instead of asking the question, could anything come, anything good come from Nazareth, he starts to say, but what if it is good? What if I've been judging something Because of everyone else saying it doesn't exist, maybe I need to find out myself. And he was coming back one time on a bus in Oxford and he said it hit him so hard, he felt like he was at a door holding this thing back. And in that moment, he knew as an intellectual, if he opens that up, he's gonna be ruined. But he wouldn't allow himself to not discover the truth. So he opened the door and what he didn't realize is that God had an incredible plan for his life to be an intellectual, to answer all the hard questions, but to do it in a way that what happens if he's really good and he's from Nazareth? Be open to what you may not know. The same is true for those with emotional doubt. It just looks a little bit different. If you're struggling today with emotional doubt, you need to be open to what you need the most. When you and I read that story If I were to say, what does that dad need the most? I think all of us would answer, he needs healing for his son. And that is wrong. It's right. (laughs) Trick question, right? It is right. He does need healing for his son. But what he really needs is Jesus. Jesus says to him, anything is possible if a person believes. And what I love about that statement is that he is basically saying to him, look, I can heal your son. And guess what? He does. And that even just shows me, even in the midst of your doubts, Jesus doesn't say, hey, come back. When you you believe all the way, then I'll heal your son. He doesn't say to Nathaniel, hey, once you figure out that I am really good, why don't you then come to me? No, no, no. He welcomes our doubts. But because this dad was honest about his doubts and he doubts to Jesus, Jesus says anything is possible if a person believes. And here's what he's saying. This dad is struggling in his faith. And Jesus says, I will throw you a life raft and I will bring you in the boat myself. And he does that. Yes, he heals his son. And there are some of you in this room that he may not heal yours, or he may not change your circumstances. But when Jesus says anything is possible for those who believe, what he's saying is you can get through anything if you believe in him. Doesn't mean it's going to change. It may, it may not. But if you trust him with your doubts, if you bring that to him, he will bring you safely on board with him. And when you're traveling and you hit an iceberg, that will never happen sink will we allow Jesus to be our everything even if our circumstances don't change and when you doubt because you will because I will you just doubt to Jesus and realize he is all we need and the more you do that the more faith replaces doubt you see everybody doubts some of you in this room doubt this way intellectually And you may still wrestle with those doubts. Just continue to bring those to Jesus and be open to what you may not know. Some of you, like me, will struggle emotionally and those things may not change, but in the end, I have to realize I'm trusting a God that doesn't change either and I need to trust him with my life. Anything is possible for those who believe in him. But in the end, it's what you do with that doubt that matters. And when you doubt to Jesus, you're beginning a journey. I love how my seminary professor puts it. All discoveries begin with doubt, and the largest doubts can oftentimes lead to the biggest breakthroughs. Let's pray. Father, there are those in this room who are doubting intellectually, who have these questions. And Lord, I pray that you would save us from the idol of certainty. None of us have certainty in anything in life, but we do have faith. We can put our faith in anything we want, but God, you're asking us to put our faith in you and see what you will do for us. Thank you for changing Nathaniel's life. Thank you for changing C.S. Lewis's life. I pray that you would help change the intellectual doubter in this room. And for those like me who are struggling to swim right now, I pray, Lord, that yes, they would ask you for healing, but most importantly, they would ask you for you so that you can help them get through anything. Thank you for promising us, if we doubt to you, a breakthrough is coming. and We need that. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.